2: A new kind of Cold War, perhaps one waged in trade policy and sanctions. Here to tell us more, Ariel Cohen. He is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and also the director of the Center for Energy, Natural Resources, and Geopolitics at the Institute for the Analysis of Global Security. Ariel, thank you very much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Now, I got to just by that introduction I have to assume you know just about everything there is to know, but you can't foretell the future. But having said that, so given your the context in which we operate right now, what is the most crucial uh kind of foreign policy issue that you believe President elect Donald Trump will tackle?
3: I think the uh clear focus of Trump is on the Pacific. Uh I suspect that the one who is going to uh, implement the pivot uh, to the Pacific that President Obama talked about so much and didn't do much, uh, and then got an egg on his face with the Philippines, of course. Uh, the, the real pivot is going to be under Trump, and it's not going to be pretty because China is the rising power, it's rising great power. Uh, they have a history and culture of playing strategic games. Uh, their national game is Go, uh, which is capturing territory. Uh, And it's played for a long, long period of time. Uh, So I suspect that Donald Trump is trying to uh, butter up uh, Putin, uh, uh, detach Russia from China, Uh, a toll order indeed. I was in uh, Russia uh, three weeks ago, and uh, the Russians told me it'll take you a great effort to detach us from China. Uh, And then uh, there will be some kind of a new Cold War, a trade war. Uh, with Beijing, and I really hope and pray that our country will come out on top and, in fact, that we'll turn it into a win-win.
2: Well, based on what you know of President-elect Donald Trump and also the books that he has written, what's your estimate? What's it look like in the future?
3: Uh, It looks like uh, the art of the deal is going to be the uh, guiding principle, Uh, push the other side uh, as much as you think it's safe to push them. Uh, without losing the deal. Uh, What does Trump want? He wants jobs, jobs, jobs for Americans. What does that mean? It means that we cannot have our prime, prime industrial competitor, China, with such a low exchange rate for the yuan. Uh, It means we'll have to find ways to make our industry more competitive. After all, uh, if you're looking at industrial production uh, and not just uh, services and uh, ultra high tech, uh, we have to compete against the workers that are paid, maybe a fraction of our workers are paid. And uh, when it comes to Russia, look, uh, Russia is not our friend. Um, I was born there. I speak the language. I met Putin 10 times, and I can tell you they don't like us. Having said that, uh, there are... Can
2: you interests- just, uh, hold on, Ariel, just expand yeah. a little bit on your, your meetings with uh, Vladimir Putin. Maybe just give sure. us some insight into the kind of person he's he is, and what's it like to be in a room with him, and so on.
3: Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a, a, a weird combination of intensity and uh, being really cold. Um, so it's cold intensity, I guess. Uh, he makes uh, his staff scared. He got his... Uh, translator that uh, he kept correcting, um, very, very nervous in front of a group of us, uh, but he uh, commands a huge amount of information, keeps it in his head, doesn't use uh, uh, cue cards or or notes, uh, and sometimes makes uh, really, really big mistakes, which uh, raises a question, who is briefing him? And I know who is briefing him, see his security services are briefing him.
2: What kind of mistakes are you talking about?
3: He, for example, said that uh, the United States was supporting the jihadis in uh, North Caucasus in Chechnya, and I don't buy it for a moment. We, we're not that crazy. We, but you not-
2: say that that's a mistake, or rather, do you believe that he is saying that because he he wants just to say that rather than knowing that it's a mistake, or what? What is the? I
3: I, I think Russians should know that uh, we did not do that, and there's there's a huge difference between collection. Uh, I asked him flat out. So what's your evidence for that? I said, oh. Your intelligence officers met with it where our intelligence officer would meet almost with anybody to collect. But that does not mean we would train and equip the Jihadis, the Chechen Jihadis, uh, who kill children and things like that. I, I hope and pray we don't.
2: Right. All right. All right let's turn. So what, is, what have you learned about Vladimir Putin's relationship with China that would be useful for an investor well, they, trying they to have understand? A
3: strategic, they have a strategic relationship. Uh, that Energy
2: is, is very important.
3: That is aimed at us. Energy is important. but. Uh, If you look at uh, the costs uh, of uh, building these uh, two huge uh, gas pipelines, uh, the power of Siberia and the Altai, one is from East Siberia, one is from West Siberia, we're talking uh, billions and billions, tens of billions of dollars, and the Chinese were lending this money, and to get uh, their worth back, uh, the Russians need high oil prices. This is a paramount concern for the Russians. The oil prices, as they are now, are too low. $52.94 uh, not...
2: cents. Fifty-two they, is not good for the Russians at 52 Not at all.
3: Not at all. And you remember everybody was talking about this deal that uh, Rex Tillerson cut with uh, Rosneft, the Russian In the flagship. Sokol, for
2: the Sakhalin project? No.
3: After that. Oh, uh, after that. For oh, after the that. Arctic. For the Arctic. $100 billion uh, over 30 years. But guess what? Uh, The Arctic oil is not profitable when oil prices are below 80. And they're, as you said, 52 now. And nobody knows when they're going to be 80 again. So Russia is an interesting play. There's plenty of oil in Russia uh, and gas. uh, And some of it is still very economical. So they want to compete. But they will push, push, push in the Middle East and elsewhere uh, for instability to drive the oil prices up. Uh, Mr. Putin is ahead of uh, Russia Oil and Gas, Inc., meaning the Gazprom and Rosneft and other companies that they control. And uh, he is a tough negotiator. Mr. Chichen, the head of Rosneft, uh, is a very tough negotiator. He just pulled in uh, over $11 billion from Qatar and Glencore to buy uh, 25% of Rosneft. Still, valuations per barrel. Uh, a much, much lower than Exxon or BP or Shell. Uh, but nevertheless, Russia is a huge player. They want the uh, sanctions um, waived by Mr. Trump. Uh, and the question I'm asking is, Mr. Trump, uh, applying the art of the deal, what is going to be the qui pro quo when you're negotiating with Mr. Putin?
2: well, maybe he's going to give you a call. We look forward to it. You certainly have met Mr. Putin apparently more times than President-elect Donald Trump. Thank you very (laughs) much. Ariel Cohen, he is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. He's also the director of the Center for Energy, Natural Resources, and Geopolitics at the Institute for Analysis of Global Security in Washington, D.C., of course, home to Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 HD2. I know that we've got Anand Srinivasan. He joins us in studio. And Anand, you you are the expert when it comes to the semiconductor industry. You're a hardware analyst for us here at Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for coming in. Uh, Tell us about what's going on with the U.S. chip industry and this idea that there is, I was writing this down, there's the Committee on Foreign Investments. It's a little hard to figure out exactly who they are, what they do, but they're important if a foreign company wants to buy shares in a U.S. company.
4: That, that, that That's right, Pim. This is a congressional committee which has different um, – th- this is an agency that is formed with members from Treasury, from um, uh, from Justice, from Defense, from State. And this collective group will weigh in as to the – whether American interests are being upheld or threatened as a result of any particular transaction – this could be the American subsidiary of a firm, this could be American manufacturing exposure, or this could be an American domiciled company. Um, and in this, in, over the last two years or so, the Chinese government has made it a mandate of sorts to um, heighten its exposure and interest in the, in the global semiconductor space by acquiring intellectual property, by acquiring companies outright. They wanted and- to
2: buy Axtron.
4: Right. And they did, and they were. There were indications of uh, um, Chinese state-owned in, uh, company interest in Micron as well, which is the last memory company here in the United States. And all of this has heightened the um, the interest level by Cepheus, and they are both um, more engaged as well as uh, perhaps feel more threatened as a result of this um, heightened state-owned interest. Uh, or Chinese state interest uh, in, in the semiconductor industry. They're worried that intellectual property could go overseas and that uh, the U.S. Um, interest could be threatened. Now, in the case of Axtron, and the reason
2: I mention this is because here you have a company that is in domiciled in Germany, mm-hmm. headquarters in Germany, but because, just as you described, it has operations in the United States, this Committee on Foreign Investments, they have a say.
4: Right. The purview of this particular agency isn't determined by whether the company is incorporated here um, or is domiciled here. Its, uh, it's interests depend on whether they have jobs here, There are uh, there's intellectual property here, there's manufacturing here, there's sales here, and potentially customers here, et cetera, et cetera. So loosely defined whether American interests are, um, are at risk or not. And, you know, the, you, you have to look at the context overall as well. The semiconductor industry over the last two years has going through a substantial consolidation for a variety of reasons, whether it's for scale, whether it's for margin expansion, sales expansion, uh, putting two products together, um, logical product overlap, et cetera, et cetera. For a whole host of reasons, the consolidation has made sense, and the Chinese state-owned interest um, or, or state-owned companies have been a – participant in in that category in a substantial way. If you take that out, it takes a little bit out of the um. Uh. The the fluff out of the semiconductor land. Well, it takes uh, a buyer if if if, it the, if a buyer the, out.
2: right. It takes a buyer out. If you got fewer buyers, chances are you're not going to necessarily get that much bidding activity. So maybe it depresses prices that these companies are hoping to get.
4: Absolutely. So one of the other routes for Chinese companies, whether it's state-owned or private, to take in this in this scenario could be a partnership. We've seen a lot of HP transactions as um uh, w- with this sort of a a model we've seen uh, seen a little bit of Intel do the s- similar things we've seen Qualcomm do similar things maybe the nature of the M&A or the nature of the transactions changes into more of a JV structure more of a partnership agreement structure rather than an outright buy which is going to be more difficult do third parties get squeezed? I mean, uh, uh, companies
2: that are doing manufacturing, let's say in Taiwan or in, uh, you know, uh, South Korea, for example, are they, are they getting squeezed because it's either going to be you make
4: it in China under strict rules, or and the intellectual property comes from the, the U.S. The actually, to be quite honest, there's a more disrupting influence in this equation, which is the U.S.-China trade relationship, and if there is, a, if there's a wrench thrown into that kind of um, a system, then, uh, semiconductor manufacturing, particularly, will be will be threatened. Uh, technology manufacturing generally will be threatened, and we will have to find a new home for all of these places. One of the interesting um, byproducts is of the of the new uh, incoming administration could be uh, some shifts in this particular landscape. Well, it could certainly make a, a portend a shift in where the money is going. Absolutely, but the interesting part of it is, look. U.S. companies or global uh, technology companies don't manufacture in China because it's neat. It's it's substantially cheaper, and you get uh, substantial tax breaks, manufacturing incentives, et cetera, to try and make um, your ecosystem there. And it's also, you've had a history of success there. You, all of the companies are co-located very efficiently uh, from a geographic perspective. So all of these things make for... Um, an interesting location to make it and a movement there will be uh, harmful.
2: Thanks very much. Anand Srinivasan, our Senior Semiconductor and Hardware Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. We also want to look at as the automobile companies because uh, President-elect Donald Trump tweeted uh, over the uh, holiday... Uh, I guess, respite, that uh, General Motors should be making the Chevy Cruze in the United States. Well, when we want to know about automobiles, we call David Welch, Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News in Detroit. Uh, David, uh, thanks for being uh, with Mm -hmm. us. How many Cruze automobiles are made every year and where are they made?
0: Well, so GM sells a couple hundred thousand of these,
2: and it's mostly
0: the sedan. See, these days Americans aren't really interested in compact cars because gas is cheap, and they have never been interested in hatchbacks. The cruise hatchback is what the plant in Mexico builds, and it's mostly for the Mexican market, for South America, and to export to other places. The uh, the cruise that is sold mostly to Americans is built in Lordstown, Ohio. So there's, there's a bit of a... Uh, uh, Sabre rattling over a a really small number of cars uh, with Donald Trump's tweet this morning.
2: I see. So the the point being that the automobiles in question are typically for the Mexican market. So I I read a number that this accounts for maybe like two percent, two and a half percent of all the production of cruise vehicles. And as you said, the hatchback is not a big seller.
0: Correct. It, it, it's a very small number. Now, look. The the, the broader point,
2: and you know,
0: let, let's face it. Trump has never really uh, bothered himself with with minute details on things uh, or specifics. His broader point is that a lot of production has gone to Mexico, and and about two thirds, a little less. Let's call it sixty percent of Mexican auto production is sent to the U.S. Uh, or Canada. So there is a wage difference. It's about five or six dollars an hour versus an average of about 24 uh so automakers are saving on that and it's not just u.s automakers everybody is down there now and uh there are also some great free trade deals that allow companies to export cars all over uh over the world mexico's kind of outflanked the u.s and canada on those deals so there's a lot of savings and that's that's his point this particular car though is not really uh it wouldn't be of any consequence GM cut a shift. They used to make the cruise on three shifts. Now they make it at two shifts in Lordstown, Ohio. If you brought the cruise hatchback to the U.S., that would not add a shift. They would just amp up the line speed a little bit and have the same workers you know, work a little quicker to make it. It's just not a consequential number of cars.
3: It certainly does look like investors are kind of seeing through this latest uh, Trump effect, you might say. And GM uh, was down just uh, maybe half a percent or so uh, before the opening bell. And since then, I mean, the stock's generally been higher. It's up uh, almost 2% at this point. So Ford, uh,
2: same thing with Ford Motor Company. Ford Motor Company up uh, more than 2.5% right and, now.
3: And they've certainly been in the crosshairs as well because of their Mexican production. So, you know, it's like uh, people are looking at what's coming out over Twitter and really trying to make sense out of it as opposed to just uh, knee-jerk reacting to whatever uh, the latest 140 characters are saying.
2: Well, David Welch, you mentioned something about what Americans like to drive. Uh, and right now with gasoline prices, where they are, it seems as though they only want large automobiles, large vehicles, light trucks, for example.
0: Pretty much, yeah. It's you know, Pickup trucks are doing well. And, and now that's often tied to the housing market. But in terms of what consumers buy, the, the family car is now really the family crossover SUV. So the Chevy Equinox is GM's mid mid-sized crossover SUV that's pretty new to the market. Uh, or at least the newest generation is. That's the one that Trump actually could have made some hay out of if he had really studied what GM is doing in Mexico, because that vehicle is made in a plant in Ingersoll, Ontario. And with the new version that's just coming out, GM went from one plant, which is the one in Canada, to three, and the other two are in Mexico. So you will see a number of very important vehicles that sell for twenty-five, thirty thousand, 30000 or more, for American families with the Chevy badge on it coming up from Mexico, that's really the one that if he wanted to make hay, he could have. Uh, The same kind of goes for the Lincoln MKC, very small volume vehicle that Ford made in Kentucky. They were going to send it to Mexico. Trump got them to keep it. Uh, That was another, you know, kind of similar to the Cruz, pretty small volume. If you really want to go after these guys, you got to find a big volume vehicle in a plant that hasn't started making production yet,
2: and say, hey, You say it's the the Equinox. Yeah, the Equinox is a big deal. How, uh, how much, uh, just uh, quickly, how many, about how many do they sell, are they planning to sell?
0: Oh, it, it's, you know, depending on how well they do, it's, you know, well over 200,000. All right. And probably closer to three. Wow.
2: All right. Thanks very much. Uh, David Welch, a Bureau Chief, Bloomberg News from Detroit. All right, he's got his comfortable shoes packed. He's getting ready for the 2017 Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. But before he goes out west, he joins us here in the studio. David Garrity is the chief executive of GVA Research, a columnist at Investopedia. And he is followable on Twitter at GVA research. All right. Followable at GVA research. I like, you know, this is a whole new Twitter world, David. Uh, You've been following technology for how long now?
5: Uh, Since the last millennium.
2: Yeah. Okay. Since the last, right. When was the last, is this a new era where you have uh, the president-elect of the United States tweeting about GM, about building a car that isn't actually that, You know, widely sold in the United States, building it in Mexico and saying, you know, you better build it in the United States. And then Ford coming out and saying, uh, on the other hand, we're not going to build out that plant in uh, San Potosi, San Luis Potosi in Mexico, the $1.6 billion uh, plant. This is a tech story as much as anything. Do you think? No,
5: no it's very much of a tech story and very much a discussion here about uh, technology disrupting what had been sort of well-established patterns in this case of communication and policy making, and and also the communication of policy. Uh, from that standpoint, one has to be always concerned with respect to technology's ability to outrun human comprehension. So, from that standpoint, we stand here at a Maybe a dangerous point where, you know, things outstrip or events move faster than people have the ability to actually manage them. And when you're talking about, you know, the world's leading economy and world's leading military power, the consequences should be
2: concerning. Clearly, Having said that, technology always has the mantra that if there is a problem that technology creates, they also have a solution. And in this case, artificial intelligence. This is going to be one of the trends that is going to be featured at the Consumer Electronics Show. Tell us about artificial intelligence, No, AI. very much
5: so. In terms of looking at AI, I mean, we're looking here at, at arguably a technology development that one might be considering as an apex, a peak element in terms of dominating the technology ecosystem, and this is something that potentially is going to be introduced in a fairly wide range of areas. Uh, we certainly know that you know there are elements in terms of chatbots that are being developed by various social media companies, but clearly this goes well beyond that. And we may be looking here just given the amount of data that's being generated. I mean, we're looking here potentially at uh, something along with, you know 44 zettabytes of data being produced by 2020. That's a lot of information to- I- Basically, I don't even know what
2: a zettabyte is. I mean, I know how many movies you know you can get with one gigabyte. That's kind of one. But uh, Tesla, I love this example. Tesla has aggregated the data of eight hundred million miles of driving already,
5: already. And obviously, this is only. Do you get to opt out when
2: you get behind the wheel of a Tesla and say, "Look, I don't want my driving"?
5: I would imagine that you're going to find a situation – I don't think that you'll be able to because clearly the interest here in terms of the people providing the products is to capture the information. The value resides in the data and what you can learn from this. And in the case of going back to artificial intelligence, we're probably going to be seeing creation of a new market here called artificial intelligence as a service. And in its full-blown promise, it might lead to an improvement in terms of productivity, uh, because clearly, machines that have greater computing power than possibly humans, you know, may be turned over to do this work. The question's always going to be, what are the humans going to do in the meanwhile, uh, with all this copious free Well, they're going to invent time.
2: augmented reality, because that's trend number two. Tell me about AR, augmented reality.
5: Well, I mean, certainly, you yeah, uh, know, CES, the Consumer Electronics Show in 2016, was very much taken up with, you know, what Facebook was coming out with, the Oculus Rift and with virtual reality. Headsets, and that proved to be a little bit of a bust because the Rift didn't sell as much as Facebook did. Still, sold four hundred thousand units, but not enough as the millions that people might have thought. But here, clearly, we're looking at a situation that, with you know, aug- with augmented reality, you know, technologies that are crossing the physical digital divide, you know, do represent the, the future of computing. And from this standpoint, you know, we're looking at a wide range of companies that are going to be coming out. You know, we're thinking here that we're looking at, you know. At augmented reality and virtual reality headsets. Um, You know, certainly with regards to, um, you know, all the things that are being advertised over the Christmas season in terms of people like being able to use their Galaxy 7 when it wasn't bursting into flames, you know, using it as a virtual reality headset.
2: All right. Uh, Certainly. Can you use it in an autonomous vehicle? I guess you could, right? Because if you're not going to be driving, you could put on that headset and just you know, watch a movie. It's quite possible. I mean,
5: from the standpoint that you're looking at automated vehicles, once they get onto a highway, uh, they probably will be have a fully automated control system. So from that standpoint, the person who's the otherwise driver
2: is free to do pretty much whatever they want. It could be augmented
5: reality. It could be virtual reality.
2: I think I'm going to need all those, hell, all those realities to help me navigate 2017 and also David Garrity. Thank you very much for coming in and spending time. He's the chief executive of GVA Research, a columnist for Investopedia, and he can be followed on Twitter at GVA Research.